Well, could I echo Callum's welcome? It is so good to see you folks here in the building. It's still really strange when we could probably have six, seven times as many of us uh, here to be in this building to make it full as we are used to. But you're here and that's great. And for you folks listening at home, I hope you're going to be visiting us soon, booking those tickets so that you're able to come and join us. Because it is special, it's important that we gather together in this way. We long to see each other. It's one of those means of grace whereby we can build each other up. So it's good to see you, good to be able to welcome you. Let me ask you, of all the cities that the Apostle Paul visited on his missionary journeys, which one do you think is most like Edinburgh? Maybe Rome, the capital city of the empire, the center of power, the place of influence. Maybe Rome, because there's a lot in common. Or maybe Athens. Athens was the leading center of culture and learning and beauty. And certainly, you and I know Edinburgh has a lot to offer in that regard. Or maybe it's Ephesus, the unquestioned center of religion and spirituality in the Roman world. And... Again, here in Edinburgh with our towering buildings and cathedrals and that rich history that we have of religious influence, maybe that's the one. But actually, in my opinion, the closest fit is Corinth, the world leader in trade and wealth and luxury and vice. You see, Corinth is situated on a piece of land that is just four miles wide. Now, uh, I know those of us here are seeing this. I'm assuming you folks at home are able to see this as well. But you can see something of uh, what Corinth is like, where it is situated. It's situated on a piece of land that is just four miles wide. That's known as an isthmus. And that separates mainland Greece from the three-fingered blob of land to the south, which is known as the Peloponnese. And and this made it a city, therefore, you can see that all north-south trade would have to pass through, as well as a city that was used by trading ships that would be traveling east to west, from the Aegean to the Adriatic, and vice versa. You see, small ships, to avoid the dreaded voyage around the southern tip of the Peloponnese, were often dragged across that isthmus. You can see on the map, uh, that marking that narrow strip, ships would have been dragged across, certainly the smaller ones, and would be uh, taken from the connecting ports. ports. There was Sencria on the east, there was Lycaeum on the west. And if you were a larger ship, you would unload your cargo at one of these ports and it would then be carried physically across the way. 
to the next port and another ship would pick that up and continue the journey in a way that was safer and quicker. And therefore, you can see, as a result, Corinth became the world center of trade and an immensely wealthy city. And with wealth came luxury. And with luxury came vice. To its south was a lofty mountain over 2,000 feet high, known as the Acrocorinthus. I think, again, we can see that highlighted on the map. Now, that was, a, that was a great mountain. It had a number of purposes. One, it could be used as an impregnable base from which to defend the city, but it also housed and was better known for the temple, a great temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility. And this temple housed over a thousand temple prostitutes who serviced the worshippers who ascended to the temple and who then at night descended into the city to ply their trade. In fact, the name Corinthian became a description for anyone at that time who lived an immoral life. And in the plays of the time, it was commonplace for a Corinthian to come on stage drunk. It was like comic relief. You know, you had that laugh. Here was the Corinthian character who'd come on. He was the fool. He was the licentious one. He was the drunk who wasn't in control of himself. And it's against such a background of that city there in Corinth that Paul planted a church. And it comes as no surprise that the pervading immorality of their surrounding society began to seep in and infect the behavior of some within the church. In fact, Paul ended up writing at least four letters to the Corinthian church, of which we have two recorded for us in Scripture, in which he attempted to correct some of the issues that had arisen in the church. And in the letter we're looking at in this series, known as 2 Corinthians, although it was probably the fourth letter that he'd written to the Corinthian church, we can see some of the problems that had been thrown up. Did you notice in our reading that Paul makes reference to a previous letter he'd written there in verse 3? He said, I wrote as I did. Or verse 4 there in chapter 2. For I wrote to you out of great distress. And commentators describe this missing letter as the severe letter. We don't know precisely what was in it, but we do know that Paul went tearfully in with all guns blazing to deal with some difficult situations. And we're not absolutely sure what these difficult situations were. It may have been to do with the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, as was reported in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the first two verses. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you 
and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Could have been that character. Or the problem may have been to do with the person who led the group who opposed Paul. And we're going to be hearing more about that as the series continues. Or, or it may be referring to the person who was mentioned later in this letter. For example, there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. Paul writes, so even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong. So there's someone in view here nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. And some have even suggested that the problem, it's all bound up in one person. You know, the same person who, sleeping with his mother-in-law, became the leader of the opposition party and, and, and so on. It's unlikely, but we have so many uh, different opinions going. But could I say, it doesn't really matter or the Bible would have told us. Rather, there are principles at play here that are vital for us to get. And I want to divide up the lessons in, of these verses in three ways. My first point is this, maintain discipline. Maintain discipline. You see, the Corinthian church rarely seemed to get the balance of things right. They were sort of the all or nothing people, they didn't seem to think deeply enough to nuance what Paul was telling them. At first, they wouldn't exercise church discipline over the person who was sleeping with his stepmother. Now, the problem is they've gone to the opposite extreme. Uh, and having disciplined this member, whatever sin this member may have committed, they won't forgive him. And they won't restore him to fellowship. You see, it was either one action at one extreme or the other. But they failed to see the principle that was involved. So Paul tells them in verse 6 there of 2 Corinthians 2. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. In other words, Paul is saying church discipline is good, but don't forget why it's there. For the Bible gives a clear progression of what we're to do and why. It's to do with the well-being of the individual, that they may, might be challenged over behavior that's destructive to their peace and their flourishing. And it's to do with the witness of the local church, to the glory of Christ, for who we are corporately should reflect the beauty and the holiness of Jesus. And this church discipline begins in those personal and private one-to-one -one exchanges. Jesus taught this. And again, you may like to have Matthew 18 open because we find here four very clear points of church discipline that Paul is working from. There in Matthew 18, 15, it says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. No gossip. No anonymous tweets. 
No hiding behind others. No defamatory emails. You go and see your Christian brother or sister out of love. You clarify the facts and you make your loving observations for their good. And if they repent, if they agree with your reading of the situation, if they seek to correct their behavior, then praise God. That's it. Leave it there. Never revisit the scene. But if they don't, then there's stage two, and that continues there in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. For an outside viewpoint or two can help and mediate. They can help make clear what the issue is. They can listen to the response. And one prays that the seriousness of what is being done at that time will lead to repentance at this point. But if there isn't repentance, then there's Stage three, Matthew 18, 17a, the first part of that verse. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. This is the stage at which the private matter becomes public. The church, the gathered company of God's people, hears about the issue and prays and works together to show the impenitent person how serious their sin is and how it has far-reaching consequences. And practically, this may mean not allowing them to share in communion because they're out of fellowship with God's people. And it might mean suspending their church membership for a period of time to test whether any repentance is truly genuine. But if this does not bring about their repentance and restoration, then there's stage four. For Jesus goes on in the second half of that verse, Matthew 18, 17, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And what this means is the church decides that the person's hard unrepentant behavior suggests to them that they might not even have been saved in the first place. So the church is to treat them as they would an unbeliever. Now that doesn't mean being nasty, it doesn't mean being cruel, but rather Paul is saying, or at least Jesus is saying, treat them as someone who's still a stranger to God's mercy and to the blessings that come from being in a Christian family. So they're, they're removed from church membership. They'll still be loved, but it won't be the same as the pastoral care enjoyed within the family. They won't be able to serve the church or its ministries. Now, the important point to remember here is that the end goal of church discipline is the repentance and the restoration of the sinner. Let me illustrate what I mean from personal experience in church leadership. 
there were two men in a church where I served who worked overseas. They both had affairs. They both returned to the UK and they both appeared before the church family as it gathered for business. For these offenses had become public. Both expressed deep contrition. Both were shown wonderful love. Actually, I still remember the tears as folks cued to hug them and love them. It was, it, it melted a pastor's heart to see folks just queuing to just reach out to these brothers on these separate occasions. And both of these brothers had their church membership suspended for six months, for we thought it was important to test the genuineness of their repentance outside the emotion of the moment. One has been fully restored and has experienced great blessing and usefulness. The other, a little while later, went on to leave his wife, renounce his faith, and embark upon a series of other affairs. And I met with both of them, with one to help him receive the Lord's forgiveness himself, because he was finding that hard to do, he so felt the sin, and, and to help him re-enter church life. And with the other, I met up with him as a friend, as an unsaved friend, for a meal together. And he is someone who I still long to see coming to saving faith in Christ. Who I still pray for. That he would repent and trust in Jesus. But my friends, restoration is the goal for the member under church discipline. And the Corinthian church had taken their eye off the ball. The member under discipline had shown Genuine remorse and repentance over a period of time. But they wouldn't forgive him. Which leads us to Paul's second point. Which is this. Secondly, we've said maintain discipline. Secondly, show devotion. Show devotion. Let me read from verse 6. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. You see what becomes evident is that this disciplined member has truly repented and has turned back to God. In fact, his sorrow for his action is now overwhelming him. In fact, the Greek word that is used here has a sense of water coming into a boat and sinking it, overwhelming it. And that's the sense of what's happening to this, this guy. So Paul is saying that the actions of the church were right in disciplining the man, but that has now achieved its purpose. 
So the whole church now needs to underline how loved and accepted and forgiven he is. There to model the way that Jesus loves and accepts and forgives his children. Actually, that word there in that verse, reaffirm, has the sense of something formal and outward. So Paul seems to be suggesting that just as that original act of discipline had been done by the majority, so there needs to be a public acknowledgement of this man's restoration. See, I well remember the joy of walking up the aisle of the church building during a communion service, declaring on behalf of the church family that our brother in Christ, the one I had mentioned previously, who'd been restored, having been forgiven, was now being restored to us. And just joyfully hugging him with tears in my eyes. What a, it was a wonderful occasion in church life to do that, to see God's grace, to see how God had worked upon me. Brother, you're forgiven, and we see it, and we welcome you back into the life of the family. My friends, we need to be those who deeply, practically, from the heart, love one another. We're family. We're part of the body of Christ. We've lavishly received love and mercy from Christ, and we need to share and show it to one another. It doesn't matter what their background is. What, what sin they have fallen into, what hurt they have caused, we love as Christ loves us. That's what makes us so radical and so countercultural and so beautiful. But there's one warning left in the verses that we're looking at. We've seen to maintain discipline and to show devotion but thirdly Paul goes on avoid division avoid division let me read from verse 9 another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything anyone you forgive I also forgive and what I have forgiven if there was anything to forgive I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. You see, Paul is commending them for their actions. They had obeyed the apostolic authority, and he is assuring them that restoring a truly repentant brother or sister has his full support. He forgives that person just as they should. For he hints that Satan is able to divide a church through its lack of forgiveness. Satan just loves it when bitterness and division infects church life. And let's be clear. The possibility of that happening is just as real in Charlotte Chapel as in any other church. We can look upon others, dredge up the memory of their failure and treat them differently. 
There are those coming out of unhelpful lifestyles. Those struggling with pornography. Those who've been divisive. Those enslaved by gambling. Those fighting addictions to drugs and alcohol. So how do you view your brother or sister who's dealing with these things, who's truly repented, who aches to be a full part of the body of Christ? As someone helpfully put it, we are not to be hysterical or historical. Listen to Paul as he writes to the Ephesian church there in Ephesians 4, verses 30 to 32. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. You see, what Paul seems to be addressing is not their language and their behavior in the world, but their behavior in the church. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. You see, that's the key. Why should we forgive one another? Because Christ has forgiven us. That's the mark of a gospel church. That's the mark of a gospel heart. So is that what marks you out? See, it's all too quickly to rush through a sermon. It's all too easy to quickly just say what's in a passage. It's all too easy to come along to church, and maybe you've come along to church to be part of church, but not necessarily primarily to hear God's word. It's part of just the meeting together. That's really good. Brothers and sisters, we've got to let the word of God do its work in our hearts, and all too often we just let it run off our back like water off a duck's back. Let's be those who apply God's word to our hearts. Let's search our hearts. Let's search our lives. And what I want to suggest is that we take a moment or two in quietness to examine our own hearts and to repent of our failings in this area. Let's just take a moment or two to, is there something that I have against a brother or sister in the church family? Is there someone I wouldn't go and talk to? in the church family? Is there someone, I'm not going to forgive them their sin, is there someone, and you, you can remember what their failing is, and, and you find it difficult to identify them or categorize them in any other way than by memory of the sin that they had committed, and you need to deal with that. Maybe you're here, and you have fallen into deep sin. And I just want, again, to plead with you that you should repent and return to the Lord. And I say, I, I plead with you for your good. My friend, your sin is not going to make you a better or more wholesome or more fulfilled person. Your sin is not going to bring glory to Jesus Christ in the life of this church. I pray that even God would work by his spirit and by his spirit would so challenge us about those things that can us, those things that often are done behind closed doors that no one else in this building would be aware of.
Let's just take a moment or two of quiet to search our hearts and to forgive. And as we do that here, can I suggest you folks at home, just take a moment or two in all the quietness, in all that's going on around about you at this moment, to be still and to seek the Lord. just listen how Paul concludes this letter. Let me read to you. The end of this letter, he writes there in chapter 13, verse 11, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more.